Hey, everybody. Welcome to the High Point Church Sermons Podcast. My name is John Sikotowski. I'm the Communications Coordinator here at High Point Church. And today, we're not going to be posting the sermon that was from this most recent Sunday. Instead, we're going to be posting a sermon um, from 2015 called God Provides Substance. And the reason behind this is Bob Grauman preached this past Sunday. And in his preaching, he spoke about some sensitive situations uh, around the world regarding missions. So we don't want to put those things online and thus endanger people who are in the missions field. So we hope you enjoy this sermon from 2015 called God Provides Substance. My name is Lloyd. I'm also one of the elders here and also one of the pastors on staff. Uh, Nick's going to come in a moment and preach on Acts chapter 14. Uh, If you want to read along with me, turn in your Bibles to uh, page 1680. 1680 in your Bibles. Ignore uh, Acts 13. Uh, 13 through 52, I think that was last week, right, Nick? And so we'll be chapter 14, all of chapter 14, okay? At Iconium, Paul and Barnabas went as usual into the Jewish synagogue. There they spoke so effectively that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the other Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So Paul and Barnabas spent considerable time there, speaking boldly for the Lord, who confirmed the message of his grace by enabling them to perform signs and wonders. The people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, others with the apostles. There was a plot afoot among both the Gentiles and the Jews, together with their leaders, to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and to the surrounding country, where they continued to preach the gospel. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that time, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw that Paul had, what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language that gods have come down from us to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and reefs to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all the nations go their way, yet he has has not left them without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowds from sacrificing to them. Then some of the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and with prayer and fasting committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia. They came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that had now been completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. 
Thanks, Lloyd. <clears throat> hey, everybody. There's obviously a lot in that chapter. Stick with me for the first five or ten minutes and you'll see why I'm going to start out the direction that I'm going. When we talk about what's wrong with humanity, what the Bible calls sin, both our condition and our actions, there's lots of metaphors, descriptions, ways of talking about it. Um, You could talk about sin as blameworthy evil. You could talk about it as selfishness or pride or idolatry, worshiping something that isn't God. Practical atheism, treating the things in front of us as other God and God isn't king or ruler, a kind of cosmic treason. You can talk about it as a teleological unnaturalness. There's lots of ways, some with few syllables, some with many. But (coughs) one of the ways... um, to talk about what sin is and what sin does is that it creates and promotes an insubstantialness. That is, when God created human beings in his image, he created us to be spiritually and morally as well as physically substantial, weight-bearing, dense, real. And what sin is and does is it takes beings and creatures that God created to be creatures of substance and it deforms them into less and less substantial creatures. Some years ago, Lewis, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce and some Christians don't like it very much because they believe it's actually Lewis talking about how he thinks people get from heaven to hell. But it's really not about that. The story is about this bus that goes from hell to heaven and there's interactions between the ghosts of hell and the spirits of heaven. <coughs> and Lewis is really interested about how damnation happens and what it looks like. And in each case, the contrast is between a ghost of no substance that is ever shrinking and a huge, magnificent spirit that is so substantial that the damned ghost could never be there. Lewis is a ghost in the story and he can't walk on the grass because the grass is more substantial than his feet. It's like spears pointing up from the ground because... A grass that flops over to us is like, a, is like a pike in the ground to his insubstantialness. There's one character that throughout all his life, he has so listened to the lies of sin that in his ghost state, there's this big red serpent on his shoulder constantly telling him lies and controlling him slavishly. And one of the heavenly spirits says, can I just kill the lizard? Will you let me kill your lizard? Right? Because he wants them to be free of it. There's another where there's this tiny dwarf of a man and he holds the chain to this creature that Lewis calls the tragedian, which is basically this dramatic actor of a person that like, everything that's said, he takes personal offense and he makes this big show of it. He's like, how can you say that about me, about me? And like goes on and on. And as he does, the tragedian gets bigger and the man becomes less and less and less and less until you can't even see him in the chain he's holding and the tragedian brings something unseen up to his mouth and swallows it. Because there's no man left. There's only the persona of his own prideful personal self-defensiveness. There's an insubstantialness that sin creates. The person that Lewis said baptized his imagination is an author named George MacDonald who wrote in the second half of the 1800s. One of MacDonald's greatest fairy tales is one called The Light Princess, where there was this king and queen, and before their first child was born, a witch came and cursed their first child that she would be light and she would break her parents' hearts. And so this little child was born, this little tiny girl, and she didn't have any gravity. And so she would just float up out of the crib. And one day there was a light breeze out the window and she just blew out the window of the nursery and the nursemaid had to go running after her. They had to hold her down with strings. And the only thing she could do by herself was swim in the lake because somehow the water would hold her down. And when you read about this character, the light princess, it wasn't that she was perfectly wicked. She was a decently nice princess. But of soul, she was entirely insubstantial. 
She didn't see things for what they were. They didn't have any weight to her. And so she was kind of this shallow creature, even though it wasn't that she was mean or rude. She just wasn't. There wasn't anything to her. And one of the realities of what sin produces in human beings when we believe and we allow it to take hold of us and we don't put it to death through the power of Christ is that it makes us less and less and less and less until we're only this persona that it creates for us. We're only these lies that we trust and we believe in. We're only this drama that we make for ourselves. We're only these tiny, shallow ghosts of ourselves rather than the substantial spiritual beings that we were created to be with all their glory and all their strength and all their density and all their gravity. And I would argue that we live in, a, in an age where we are more that than ever. I remember the first time, um, one of the first times I was hunting in the South and we at hunt in the afternoon. I'm walking out with this guy named Sam Phillips through this wood that is like on, only if you grew up or spend time in the country do you know this kind of dark. You can see every star if you can see them through the trees, but you cannot see your hand in front of your face. And so I reached into my backpack, I pulled out my headlamp, put it on, turned it on, pulled my backpack back on, and he said, "What are you doing?" And I was like, "Are we, are we leaving?" And he goes, "Yeah, take that thing off. A stupid thing on your head." And so I was like, he's like, you can walk out of the woods without a light. And so I kind of thought he was an idiot, but I, surely he knew he's, he's the experienced one. So I turned my light off, and I mean, I just about couldn't see my hand in front of my face. I, I really did not believe that I had the capacity to do that. I didn't think that something a human could do. So I had done something else. I had coped with my, what I thought I could do and couldn't do, and I got myself a light to take care of what I thought I couldn't do. But after about five minutes, I could, I could see. And so then after that, he said, would you quit making all that noise? It's, it's supposed to be peaceful out here. That's why we do this, right? So not only was I expected to walk through the woods in the dark, I was expected to do so silently, right? I remember the first time I was reading through Once in Future Kingdom, my kids, there's this part where Wart, who is this basically little scrawny, get it, insubstantial little boy, who Merlin knows, but he doesn't know is going to grow up into King Arthur, the most substantial king of ancient British history. And he's walking through the woods with this other little boy and, and um, Robin Hood's mighty, like, whatever men. Tight pants people, yeah. Great. And... So he's going along and like they're running into stuff and they're making all this noise and they're sneaking up on this witch and so you can't really do that. And so, it, and this is meant to be a little sexist, Marion is with them, right? The Lady Marion in her dress. And she's like, yeah, you guys have to be quiet. Let me show you how. And so she starts to show them how you walk through, how you balance, how you put, keep weight on your back foot till you feel what's under your front foot, adjust your stance. And then their legs start to hurt because you use all these muscles you don't normally use in walking. But then after several hours and they're sweating, they begin to do it easier and they're not using as much energy. And by the time they get within hearing distance of the witch's castle, they're as silent as Marion and the other Marion men. They just didn't, they didn't think they could do it. They didn't know it was something that could be done. And, and that is what sin does to these incredible, immortal, divine image-bearing creatures that have come into creation through God's divine word and creativity, human beings. We walk through the shadows of our life, minuscule creatures completely unaware of what we are capable of as spiritual and moral beings. And we allow ourselves to be told we're these tiny little critters that just must obey our stomach and must obey our adrenal gland and must obey our smell and must obey our tongue. And we need not obey God or the truth or true virtue. Because part of the insubstantialness of sin is its persuasion of us of what we are and are not capable of. How did we come to believe 
a Victorian German psychologist who led us to believe that any desire we don't give into will somehow repress inside of us and destroy us from the inside out. Our urges are the shadows. We are the substantive things. Don't you see? And when, you, when we come to this passage, we see again how many times in the Bible Jesus demonstrates that natural humanity will be vicious and vacuous. And his disciples are called to be that. Disciples, disciplined learners who are becoming something. And that there will be a substance to that that is profound. Nothing you imagined before you came. Nothing that you thought you could be when you first came to Jesus. Things you believed were impossible for human beings to endure and thrive and even be happy about are possible. And the whole world says they aren't. And they are. And faith is believing that. Jesus demands substance of us. Of all humans, he demands it. Because as the righteous one, he will always demand what's right. He is not intimidated by the modern idea that if demanding something makes you feel uncomfortable for what you've already done, or that you might fail to live up to it and therefore in the future damage your fragile self-esteem, that he should not mention it. He does, he does not play like that. He demands against us what is right, and then he gives us what we require to become the thing he has demanded of us. Jesus demands substance of his substantial creations, and Jesus develops substance because God always provides what he demands. So I want to look at four ways that he provides for our substance in this passage, but I want you to understand that by provide, it does not mean that the thing you want or desire, he just gives to you. That's not, that's not how it goes. That which God has already put within you the capacity for, he doesn't give you. It does very little good to pray that God would give you like it's an object virtue. To pray for God to make you loving is not to pray along the lines of how God has called us to exist and be in the world. God is going to make you loving the way he makes everyone loving. He's going to reawaken and re-enliven the capacity for love you possess in the divine image he has already given you, that he's going to spiritually regenerate through the Holy Spirit and call out of you through faith and build in you through discipline until it is so substantial a virtue that it becomes part of our redeemed nature as it was always meant to be. Listen, I want my kids to realize they're dependent on me, but I tire of them telling me that I need to put on their shoes for them. Dependence, even what we term complete dependence, can be a phrase that leads us right or leads us badly. Two of the songs we sang this morning, the Alive song and the Ocean song, both of those songs can be sang in the most devoted, theologically robust Christian way possible, and in the most heretical, self-loathing and God-denying way possible. The lyrics are ambiguous. It depends on what you mean by them. Do you mean, God, allow me to be continuously vacuous and insubstantial, slavish in my shallow and thinness, and be everything you created me to be in the divine image you gave me so that I don't ever have to be what you want me to be, and that you will constantly be that for me so I won't have to ever be what you intended me to be from the beginning? Is that how you sang Oceans this morning? 
Or did you sing it, drag me through whatever you have to drag me to until you make in me what I am meant to be and build the substance and virtue in me I was meant to have from the first? And I will trust you through all of that process. I will trust you in everything you have not given me the capacity to do myself. And I will do in duty and love everything you have. Right? So let's look at these. One, the first thing that's really obvious in the text is that Jesus shows that substance is needed. This is only the 50,000th time in the Bible this is done. (laughs) That normal humanity, part of sin and being lost in sin, is growing towards insubstantialness, vacuousness, shallowness, vanity, all those things. And moving into discipleship is rare and costly, right? So one, Jesus says, listen, the disciples are going to face the viciousness of people. He's like, listen, if you trust and follow me, you are going to face viciousness. And so when Paul and Barnabas go into Iconium, there are people who do everything they can to stir up people against them and poison people's minds against them. You had better have the substance to stand up under slander and hatred. That's the kind of substance our love has to have. Our patience, our humility, right? But also in the very next passage, Jesus' disciples will face the fickleness of the crowds. One of the, one of the clear themes of this passage in the middle is that when he gets to Lystra, there is this incredible fickleness to the crowd, right? Like, since when is doing a miracle supposed to get you stoned? I mean, physically with stones. Are you kidding me? He comes in, there's this guy that's been lame from birth, and he goes, hey, up you go. And the guy gets, he's totally healed. And then they start speaking, and it says in the Lyconian language, so some Turkish dialect, they're like, these guys are Zeus and Hermes, let's go get some bulls. And, you know, I I don't know if Paul was speaking Greek or he didn't get it. So he's kind of like, well, they seem to be doing a lot of activity there. Maybe they're responding really well, right? And then, like, they're come pulling out bulls and big swords, he's like— Can somebody translate what's happening here? And they're like, whoa, you can't do this, right? And then, like, just after that, some other people who hate them show up and be like, oh yeah, these guys are terrible. And they're like, yes, they are. Let's stone them. And you're like, didn't he just heal the—whatever, give me a rock. Why does Luke write it that way? Why did it happen that way? Because the crowd— was vacuous. They were fickle. They were insubstantial. They could only see what was already in their own experience. Their minds couldn't even be opened by a miracle. They could only be encouraged by being told what they already believed. You could only encourage them by playing to their vanity and pride. They had no capacity for what Christians are called throughout the New Testament. Discipleship. Do you notice that we're called Christians twice in the New Testament? The Christians are called believers actually fairly scantily, not very many times, but we are called disciples and holy ones numerous times. That is one who is actually holy, like Jesus, and disciple, one who is through discipline and profound formation becoming very much like their teacher. Those are the words the New Testament authors use over and over and over and over, lest we get confused about what kind of substantialness Jesus is seeking to grow in us. And it's not just the fact that the crowds are fickle and they move back and forth between these things. All the things that we find in the Jewish leaders and in the crowds, we will find in ourselves. The Jews in the Bible are typical humanity. They're not these like, it's not like this bad race. They're the, the Jews actually in much of the Bible are the tragic yet chosen race. And yet this is how they behave. And if they behave this way, so will we. And the same with the crowd. The crowd is the crowd is the crowd. That's just what people do. If everybody's vacuous, I can be vacuous too. It's, it's very dangerous to live in a generation of people who think everything's okay because even the most conservative of us are only two steps to whatever the right or left is of whoever we think is normal. And we think that we're so tight about our morals. 
And we're really just playing space off of the people who don't care about what Jesus said rather than orienting ourselves on the basis of what Jesus said. And it is a game of the crowd, not a truth of the Savior, and we pattern our lives after it. Right? Like, cool, you're so godly about your movie watching, you didn't watch Saw 3, 4, and 5. You are awesome. Right? Like, I will, I will, like, enjoy all kinds of things that celebrate treasonous adultery, but I won't watch porn. The, like, nine of us who won't. Like, are we, are we crazy? Do we think as ghosts we can walk around and be like, I'm so substantial? No. We will face the fickleness and the vacuousness and the viciousness in our own hearts. The danger is that we would call ourselves disciples and we would be just like the crowd. So not only will we be attacked by the viciousness of people who hate us, and not only will we be among the vacuous fashions of the crowds in which we live, but we will be the crowd and we will be the vicious leaders ourselves. We are in desperate, terrifying need of substance. And we have to be persuaded of that first. And the second is, is that Jesus provides very substantive encouragement. Jesus, in a lot of ways, doesn't just dump everything on us. He actually en- he encourages us to become through faith and through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But remember, our redemption is not just in the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, but in the spiritual regeneration of us. There is an us that isn't the Holy Spirit. There is a spirit in us that isn't the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has come to remake the substantial thing that we are, to regenerate the dead thing that we were into the live thing Jesus wants for himself and has given as a gift to us and to all of creation. That thing the Holy Spirit has come to remake. The Holy Spirit has not just come to indwell a dead husk, but to make alive the tree that was meant to live in the first place and will live again. That is you. You can see this in um, a misunderstanding of that in the way we encourage each other. I was driving in my car this week with one of my kids, and I was listening to a Christian radio station that will go unnamed, and there was an encouragement spot on. There was a, this author that came on and was like, um, a ministry of encouragement to a specific gender. And she, she, said, she said, you know, I had this conversation with a friend, and it was really negative, and I—okay, I'm being meaner than I should be. And I was— I felt really negative, and so I, I was kind of sticking with me through the day, and so I said, you know what? I believe Proverbs eleven twenty five, which says that anybody who refreshes others will themselves be refreshed. So I called my friend, and I took her out to coffee, and we sat and talked for like 90 minutes, and I told her she was a great mom and a super person, and I could see her being refreshed, and in her being refreshed, my heart was filled with joy, and I felt refreshed. And that's sort of true, though kind of a misuse of that verse, because the verse points to God's providence in future refreshing, that we trust God, that when we pour ourselves out to refresh somebody in this moment, in God's providence, he would bring about our actual refreshing. It's not a psychological dynamic. It's a providential dynamic. It's a complete misuse of the passage, but it's a nice psychological idea. But what I was left thinking was, was, you need to go back and talk to your friend who apparently tore into you and was probably on to something, because I believe in Proverbs 27, 6, which says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Friendship is about love, and love is always about the true good of another. And in a world in which we live in the sinful condition and are prone to vacuousness, viciousness and shallowness comes out of our hearts every moment. We live amidst this thing. If our friends will not cut us for our good, we have no chance at substance. And I wanted to tell this woman, you need to go back and talk to your friend that apparently hurt your feelings. Because when we are called back to humility, it is supposed to be humiliating. That's what the word etymologically means. When you look at the encouragement that is offered here, it is not a foofy, you're fantastic sort of thing. 
It is brace yourself for what is coming. You need to know what is coming, and you need to know what you're capable of. And you are going to meet that challenge, even if you're a terrible mom. That's what it looks like. In fact, that's what encourage means. And the word doesn't mean a froofy little, you're fantastic right now, just the way you are. Encourage means to put courage in, right? N, Greek preposition for in, courage, fortitude and strength, ready to face something that stands against you and would normally create personal fear. Encourage. Supply courage to those who require it to stand strong amidst what they must. And so when Barnabas comes and he gives encouragement, here's his encouragement, right? Then they return to Elisha, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them, not that they're fantastic, encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Don't let anybody move you. Jesus is Savior, King, Lord. He is worth it. Remain true to that. Cling to it. Know that you must. Whatever comes over that wall, we are going to fight this way. And then in case that was any at all unclear, he says, for we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Can you imagine that as like an encouraging spot on Christian radio? Hey, Nick Gibson here with your encouraging message for the day. We're going to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Life is going to be terrible a lot. You're going to lose everything, your good looks, your health, your money, your spouse. Your kids may go off the deep end, maybe for decades, maybe forever. You'll probably lose your job. People are going to be very vicious with you, and you're going to have a, a vacuous crowd around you constantly pulling you into insubstantial sin. God bless you this morning. I'm out of—my 30 seconds are over. Right? But this is, this is how Saul and Barnabas encouraged— they said, listen, you stay true to Jesus. You hold on to Christ and what he's done and who he is and what that means. And whatever comes through those gates when they bust open, we're going to fight like the men and women God has created us to be, and we will overcome it. And it will not look like we're going to, but we have to trust that there is a force within us and a wave behind us that will meet us when those blows come. But we will fight with every strength that we possess— and the margin between what we have and what is necessary, we will trust God for living or dying. Right? Now you might be like, that's one verse. Yeah, but the last time Barnabas was encouraging something, somebody, he did something very similar. He shows up in Antioch before they go on this trip, and he encouraged them what? How did he encourage them? He tell them they were fabulous, they were great moms? No. He said he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Do you see a theme? It's the exact same thing. Encourage them all to remain true. Encourage them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. And then what did he do? In this case, what he did is he traveled over and he got a teacher to come and make disciples out of these guys. So he went and got Saul, somebody who was not known for being sweet and kind, to come and for a year teach these people. Why? So that the disciples could be so spiritually substantive that they could face whatever hardships may come between now and the kingdom of God. Because here's the encouragement. Did you catch the last phrase in the encouragement sentence? We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Did you get that one? That's, the, that's supposed to be—listen, we're going to go through many hardships. And we are going to enter the kingdom of of God. You see, if you don't have enough substance for delayed gratification as a human being, you don't have a prayer. You're done. Just go home. Take our free Bible and go home. If, I mean, if, if you have to live by your stomach every minute, you're not going to make it. If you don't have the guts to say, all right, listen, I got to become the kind of person ready to hear that and go, Awesome. We're going to hike 60 miles, but you won't believe the view when we get there. You're going to go through school for eight years. But when that little girl comes to you with that spine curved around almost in a circle, you're going to have the ability to straighten it out so she can have a decently enjoyable, useful life where she can move around. Human substantialness in many ways has to do with embracing what it will take to become what God has created us to be. Does that make sense? 
Uh, we had a staff meeting this week in which Mike, the new guy who likes to shake things up, it's kind of, he just does that. It's his personality. Um, we were having this meeting. We were talking about what we're doing, where we're going over the next year as a church. And he's like, okay, I know we do the Connect Grow Serve thing and whatever, but like, what really is your heart as a pastor? You know, everybody's weird, right? He didn't say it like that. But he's like, what, you know, all the way down to the bottom, what's the real thing for you, right? And people are kind of like, right? And, and my response was, listen, it is to make disciples. I mean, that's what it is. It's to make disciples through gospel connection, growth, and service. And we all have to be doing something together that everybody can understand. Connect and grow and serve. That's really all important. That's what I really believe in. But if you want to, if you want to ask why I quirk the way I do, why I make this, I go A versus B, and all the little decisions of that, I'll tell you what it is. I want to make disciples that are going to make it to the end and going to carry the people that need to be carried if necessary. That's what I'm here to do. And I, I'm not, and so I'm not little Mr. Sweet. I don't see what I'm here to do as going around and like holding everybody's hand in, their, in, in where they want to stay because we are going to go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God and you cannot remain vacuous because you may have to carry somebody down the road a little bit and there had better be the solidity in you to do it. And I don't know what's coming, but dang it, we are going to be ready. And so I am here to create substantive disciples that will make it to the end, who will go through many hard but will enter the kingdom of God and will bring in many who would not have made it otherwise because of the shared substantiveness and the corporate strength we build together. And so I am not here to build the kind of Christians that live off their stomach, that say that they're Christians, but they are just as worldly as the day is long, and whatever urge they get, they go for, and they ask for Jesus to forgive them, and whenever they're feeling weak, they ask for Jesus to strengthen them, and they just are okay with living by their, their urges and say that they're a Christian. And I am also not interested in being the super emotional Christian that every time we get together, we get all super psyched up and we have this emotional effusion that looks like a geyser. And then by Monday, we don't even know who we are. I have no interest in that. It just creates pain for everyone. I'm here to make what I've called in other sermons that I stole from John Piper. I'm here to make cardiac Christians. Not, not a flitter of strength that comes like when you get a little adrenaline in your system. Not that move according to our stomachs, but like a heart that beats and pushes the blood every day, every minute, just the same. Knows what it's there for, knows what it's there to do, doesn't complain. I mean, here, when was, I mean, some of you would be like, if I, if I say, you know, when was the last time your heart said, I don't like your attitude, I'm not beaten today. Right? There's a couple people who have had bypass surgery be like, yeah, I've been there, it's not good. But every day, even when you're sleeping, your heart just keeps— it's like one of the only things in your body that just does not get to rest. Even your brain kind of defragments a little while you're sleeping. The heart's just like boop, 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 boop. We think of heart as this like effluent emotional, like, oh, ball my heart. Yeah, okay. There, there, there is some reality to that. In Philippians 3, there's a section where Paul's talking about being heavenly minded. He says, For I've often told you before, and now say it again even with tears. So this is something that really gets at his heart as a pastor and apostle. It's something that he wishes he could change about the nature of how people respond to God. He hates that it's true, but they have to know it's true. And he says, so I tell you this, I'm not glad to tell you this. I say it with tears in my eyes telling you this, but it is dead on true and you've got to know it. Right? He says, but I now say it again with tears. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And they glory in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. You see what he's saying? He's saying, there is this whole—and some of these people will call themselves Christians. Some of these people come to church a good bit. But when you really, when you really get down to it, they think— they laugh at sin, stuff that dishonors God terribly. They think it's really funny, whatever. They act like everybody else. They dress like everybody else. They spend their money like everybody else. They jump into bed like everybody else. They do just about everything like everybody else. And they, and they think that they're these like sort of good Christian people and how dare you judge me. And he said, their God is not Jesus. Their God is their stomach. 
which is, of course, a metaphor for how visceral a life they lead, how small the voice of sin has convinced them that they are. You could say it like this also with the three little pigs, right? Listen, I'm not here to make straw Christians, and we're not here to make stick Christians. Are stick Christians better than straw Christians? Yeah, by about two minutes in that story, right? I'm here to make brick Christians, because you'll notice in the Three Little Pig story, it doesn't go the way it should go. Here's the way the story should go. Three Little Pigs built their houses. The pigs that made sticks and straw were having a good time. And the other guy was like, oh, I'm building my house with bricks, right? And then the big bad wolf comes along, and he puffs and puffs, and he blows the first house down. And then he tears the first pig to pieces, and there's blood splattered all over the straw, and his, like— visceral guts are laying about and he devours him and leaves nothing but a little scrap of bone and then he lays bloated for days in the rotting whatever okay then he goes on to that and, and the same thing happens I probably shouldn't say it all again because we don't have bags in the pews and then <laughs> he goes to the third house and he bluffs and he puffs and he can't blow it down right and he goes in and he falls in the pot and burns up and whatever the little pig apparently eats the wolf and pigs will eat anything so maybe that's true what happens in the story is the one little pig runs to the other little pig's house. So apparently he's like, a, has an, a back door underground. So yeah, he didn't build his house out of bricks, but somehow he dug a little passageway, right? But somehow he makes it to the other little pig's house. And when he blows down that house, they actually somehow make it to the other little pig's house. So there's three little pigs in there, and then they all eat the wolf, apparently. But in some ways, that is what we want. We want to be the sort of Christians that not only have become substantially weight-bearing of our own accord, but we're the kind of people that when Christians who have been taught that faith in Jesus is a vacuous thing, and they walk in the pain and destruction that that produces, and they flee that to find something more real and more substantial and more biblical— and more gospel-centered, and they run and they bump into you, they will go, this is a brick house. This is what I—they will recognize it immediately. They will recognize what fell down. They will recognize what you are, and they will—they will cling to you, and you'll be able to tell them where, where we are going. Or like I've said in sermons in the past, I'm not here to make crabs who are hard on the outside but gushy on the inside. We can be mean to other people, but we're not substantive when you break us open. Or a slug. We're, we're like, oh, whatever, and then we're, we're totally squishy and we have no substance. We're, we're like a horse, right? You touch us, we have a soft nose. But under that soft skin, flesh, and fur, we have bone, and you cannot push us, but we can carry you. That's what we're here to be. And that's what you can be. And Jesus constantly has been sending people into our lives, including himself from heaven, to say, you were meant to be that. And I'm not saying it so that if you feel like you're like, oh, this is kind of hurts. I'm not, I'm not, my goal is not to hurt your feelings. It is a little bit. Because there is a humiliation, a coming back to humility we all need. But what I'm telling you is you are you were created to be that radiant spirit. You were created to be that substantial thing. You were created to be something you don't even think is possible. And not only is it possible, Jesus demands you become it and will meet you at each step along the way to get there. We're going to spend very little time on these, on these last two. It, most of the time was on that second one. Um, the third thing you see in this passage is that Jesus creates examples of substance in shepherds and leaders. Spiritual leaders, spiritual shepherds are enormously important. You should, if somebody says, who's your spiritual shepherd, you should be able to name names if you're a Christian. Because you're a disciple who's teaching you. Right? And it's great if you can say, Nick, Nick comes and yells at us like every Sunday. Yeah, yeah, but I, I'm not there doing the close work. For most of you, I can only, you can only pastor about 10 people, right? Really know what's going on, really being able to call their bluffs, knowing them well enough. Honest, spirit, honestly, spiritual discipleship is, is supra-friendship. That is, friendship has to exist. And in that true love of the other, there, there's someone who can work as a disciple-maker or a mentor. And being a protege can be received and pride can be set aside for that. 
I can only do that for about 10 people. I can barely do it for the staff. And so, who is your teacher? Who are you teaching? How is that working? I think that there's probably 100 people in this church that should take the Madison leadership course that's coming up. I think it starts next Thursday. Probably, there's probably 100 people that God probably would want to take that class. And I think there's 15 signed up, which is great. I'm really glad for the 15 that are signed up. One of the things you also see this passage, and I just want to make a really quick point about this, is that you see an excellence in the spiritual leaders, and you also see a tenacity in them. And there is no dichotomy between, I'm, I believe in, I'm, I'm a faith person, and I'm a skill person. There's no, there's no split there. There's no like, well, I don't, you know, I don't work hard on the craft of preaching or teaching Sunday school classes or studying the Bible well or all those things that are disciplines that have to be built. I don't have to do this because I trust Jesus and I walk out of that and I move out of that and I have faith. Baloney. There's no dichotomy. And you can't say, well, like, I don't need prayer time because, like, I really study my Bible and I know what it says. So that's really dumb too, right? There is an excellence, right? It says they spoke so effectively that many people came to Christ, and it says that they won many disciples. That is, they persuaded many people to follow them as their spiritual teacher. There was an excellence about the leadership of these two guys, and yet at the same time, when it came down to where excellence isn't going to help you, right, it says that people came along and poisoned the minds of the people against Paul and Barnabas. So how well they taught stopped mattering. Do you get that? They were spoke, they spoke so effectively that they were persuading people. And so these leaders came in and slandered them. They poisoned their minds against them. What do you do then? It doesn't matter how well you speak. At that point, you better have faith. You'd better be able to say, listen, whether you listen or not, whether you hate me or not, whether you stole me or not, I'm about to tell you the truth, whether you listen or not. And out of that actually even came God enabling them to perform miraculous signs because God filled in where their substance ended. And so I will never repent for demanding excellence, even from volunteers, even if you have faith. Whatever we do to serve Jesus, we are going to do with the highest level of craft we can. And not in a perfectionist kind of way, but in a way that we take, take it seriously. We want to do the best job that we can. We want to meet people where they are, and we want to help them grow. And we want, to, we want to be people of quality, and yet never to put our trust in it. Ever. And when those moments come where our craft can't move us forward, to realize it was never meant to. There, the kingdom of God moves forward by the power of God and by faith. And both of those exist together in all of our— So when you nominate elders, elect elders, hire and fire pastors through congregational votes, who we encourage to move up into ministry, lead Bible studies, teach small groups, lead classes, lead in the children's department, what are we looking for, right? This is what we're looking for every time. And that's partly because I would want to argue that abhorring hype and fashion, especially in our leaders, is a kind of Christian vigilance we all have to have. Okay, lastly, really quickly. Um, The fourth is, is that Jesus actually creates substance and structures. You'll notice that the way the passage ends, when Paul and Barnabas are going to leave, they don't just leave and say, hey, I encourage you to stay true to the faith. I warned you that we are going to have to go to the kingdom of God through many hardships. You've accepted Jesus. We've baptized you. You're good. We'll see you in a couple years. When they left, they created structure in that they selected certain men, and they laid their hands on them, and the church together prayed for them, and they appointed them elders. And they saw that as entrusting themselves to God. So this passage does not accept the notion that real spirituality has no relationship to structure. There's no such thing as a Christian faith that rejects rejects organized religion that is in any way Christ-centered or biblical. The first thing these people do is they 
appoint elders. Why? It's because if you understand what we are as human beings, it could never be otherwise, right? To not, to reject structure is to reject human nature, which is that we are constantly wandering off. Can you imagine a sheep being like, I don't need a shepherd. It's a big deal. There's grass, there's water. It's a big deal. And you're like, you idiot, you don't even know how to get there. <laughs> you don't know how to get back. You don't know when to go. You don't know when to come home. You're not looking for animals. You don't know what's going to happen. You've only your whole life followed the butt of the sheep in front of you. Like, you, you don't need a shepherd? Are you kidding me? Right? But sheep are like that, and we're like that. That's why we get compared to sheep, right? There's this idea in us, but human nature is that we constantly wander. We constantly get confused. We constantly believe our sinful condition. Oh, yeah, that must be right. And somebody has to be like, no, it's not right. We constantly need this external help because of our human nature. But also, it's our real human purpose. Your real human purpose was not to make no commitments and therefore take on no responsibilities so that you could always be free to choose to consume something else so that you could be happy because you were never tied down. That is the gospel of practical atheistic American consumerism. We were created to be exploited. We were created to bear weight. We were created to be horses. We were created to live for the kingdom and purposes of God and plow the fields that needed to be plowed and raise up the crops that needed to be raised and fight the battles that needed to be won and build the fences that needed to be created and create the hospitals where people needed to be cared for. We were made to bear weight. We were created for responsibility. We were made after the earth was already created and needed somebody to do stuff in it. And then God made us to do that. And so there always has to be something for us to engage into. The church partly exists so that you can feel responsible to it, to its people and those who come to find Christ there. And because our human calling is spiritual leadership on some level, every person, if you follow Christ and are truly his disciple, you will find yourself discipling others. That doesn't mean you're going to lead 19 people to Jesus. It might. Might be more than that. But you will come along somebody and help them become a more substantial disciple of Jesus. If you are a substantial disciple of Jesus, you will come along someone else. Maybe it's just your own kids for a decade and a half or two. But you will, throughout your life, come alongside of other people and you will help them become more substantial disciples of Jesus. On that level, everyone's human calling is spiritual leadership. And leaders are created in that structure is created within the church to facilitate all of our callings. And so it is not a weird thing, and it is not a strange thing, and it wasn't a one-time-in-history thing. It's the reason why we use the same structure here today. We elect elders. They're in charge. Not me. Let me end with this. <clears throat> if you haven't read The Light Princess, I would really encourage you to read it. It's a great thing to read to your kids. There's this point at the end where the way that the light princess copes with the fact that she's insubstantial is she swims in this lake. And she loves it. She loves to swim in the lake. She just loves swimming. And then this prince shows up and he wants to swim in there. She's like, cool. And they just kind of swim and they're having a great time. And then the witch unleashes her great serpent and he drinks the lake from below. And the lake is going away. And she is totally beside herself because her whole world is caving in. Right? And so, um, I forget how the answer comes forward, but the answer is, is that some human person has to plug the hole so that the water can rise again and has to die and drown in that hole so that the lake can exist. And so the princess can have her lake. And so she says, who will do that? Who will do that? Who will do that? And the prince that's been swimming with her says, I will, goes to the, his, her father and says, I will do it on this, on this condition. She has to be with me, and she has to look at me while I do it. 
And he, he puts it within the context of she has to feed and, and give me something to drink while I do it. And so they agree, and so she kind of goes, oh, okay, because she has no substance. She doesn't know what she's about to do, right? And so as the water rises, she's just talking gaily with him, like, oh, what's, you know, oh, maybe, oh, the water's coming back up. Maybe we can go for a swim. And he says, princess, I will never swim again. And she goes, oh, I'm sorry I said that. Right? Until the water rises and rises and, and she gives him his last bit of food and the last little sip of wine and it comes up to the bottom of his lip and it comes to the meeting of his lips and she can see him kind of clench his lips together so the water doesn't come in and then it comes above his mouth and the bottom of his nose and then he, she can see his eyes wide looking at her and she can't take her eyes off of him and then she sees his head go back and fall limp and at, at that moment when she sees him die Something happens to her, and she flips out. And she leaps out of the boat into the water, and she, gra- and she pulls on his arms, and he's stuck in this hole, and she's pulling on his arms and pulling on his body, and pulling it, and then she realizes she can't breathe, and then she comes up for a breath, and she realizes, well, if I can't breathe, he can't breathe all the more. So she goes back down, and she pulls, she pulls, and she pulls, and she finally gets him out of the hole and puts him in the boat. She's screaming like she's in this this crying rage, and she brings it back, and everybody's freaking out of the shore, and they, she, she makes them bring her to her bed, and there's this old wise nursemaid that tries to bring him back, and she starts cr- gushing with tears, and the tears are just pouring out of her, and finally, the, the nurse is able to, you know, do whatever just right, and he coughs, and he sort of, he begins to revive, and she just falls apart all the more, and, and um, and McDonald says all the tears of all of her years that she never shed because nothing was substantive enough to make her cry to her came out in that moment until at last she said, he said, Princess, if you are healed, so am I, as he sat up in the bed. But she tried to get up and she couldn't. And she fell and bruised her knee and shoulder and her nursemaid cried out. She said, my darling child, you have found, she has found her gravity. The reason why the gospel, the message of Jesus, who himself is is magnificent from every angle, that he has come and he has poured himself out in every way for you, that knowing everything about, everything about you, everything you've done, everything you've thought, everything you've hoped for, everything you've lost, and that he's taken it to himself and that he has laid himself down for you, It is not just meant to forgive your sins. Jesus never plays only one angle. It is meant that in the moment where you actually look into the face of the death of Jesus, that something would happen to you that you'd find your gravity. It is meant that that you would so see what Jesus is has done, who he really is, what his life means, what he's called you to, what the world is really like, that in that moment when his eyes are wide and he drowns out for that last moment, that a shriek of reality would come into your soul and that you would be moved in such a way as (coughs) a gravity would come over you that would never leave you. That would always in some sense be a burden in its weight but that you would finally become a burden who can, a person who can yourself bear weight. And when that happens, and only when that happens, I have seen some of the most cultured and educated people through sin find a way to become vacuous. And I have seen some of the most well-brought-up people taught to be infinitely polite find a way to, within that, become vicious. It is only when you look into the wide eyes of Christ in his death for you that you forget about the lake of your vacuous stomach and you will do anything to pull out the body of the one who truly loved you and that gravity will carry you into discipleship and carry you into substance. And through many hardships, you will gladly enter the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that there is a certain truth to the fact that sin makes 
insubstantial creatures, but we pray that you would make us people of substance in Jesus, that we would hear his demand, we would hear his warning, we would embrace his encouragement, that we would accept and follow his leadership in people that he has put in leadership with us, that we would embrace the structures that we require, that we would follow you with everything we have, and that your wide eyes of love would bring to us the gravity we've never experienced. So we can have a beating heart of solid life in us that you call discipleship. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When you